You are now listening to The Bannerman, an L.A. Kings podcast. Well, here it is. The Kings-Oilers series recap episode is upon us, and it's the first playoff episode in our podcasting history that features a series where the Kings didn't get demolished. This is Carl. How are you tonight, Vardy? I'm good, man. I'm, I'm a, I feel like a proud papa <laughs> reporting on a series that was actually a series and not just a woeful exhibition of, of hockey. Well, I shouldn't, I, I mean, there was definitely some woeful exhibitions of hockey, but not an entire seven game series of terrible hockey, at least. No, I think once you're, when you're in it and you're watching it, there's a lot of disappointment, obviously with how it ended, but I think it wears off pretty quickly and you realize life ain't so bad, especially after you watch Toronto and all these other teams. Oh God. So sad. You know, bridge jumpers and things like that. We're all right. We're all right. Um, but yeah, series recap. I think let's get into it, man. There's a ton to cover. Uh, I think we can go game by game and just kind of recap what we saw and more importantly, what we felt in the series. Yeah, I, I, I think, well, first and foremost, I should say that my my thoughts from before the series have not changed. I, I truly, truly was not disappointed uh, that they didn't win the series. Um, I, you know, I guess I was a little disappointed in how game seven went. I was hoping there would be a better performance once it got to that point. But um, ultimately, they lost the game because... Connor McDavid kind of took over, right? When when the Oilers had their backs against the walls and the Kings had two chances to close them out, um, McDavid just refused to let that happen, in my opinion. You can you can make the case that, oh, Mike Smith got a shutout in game seven, but it's like if you were watching that game and you were watching the flow of that game and you were watching where these Kings shots were coming from and how the Kings were playing – I felt like that game was 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 done about you know by the end of the first period i just i didn't get any sense whatsoever that the kings were going to do anything differently but throw a bunch of poor percentage shots at the net and hope for the best i did have more faith after game seven or mm-hmm. after the first period of game seven i should say mm-hmm. um just because i felt like it was a good road period the kings kind of survived yeah it wasn't they weren't really generating and they weren't truly dangerous outside of maybe one play at the end of the period. But overall, I I think that's where my disappointment comes in is like they had two periods there where they could have at least taken the game to Edmonton and it just never happened. But we'll get into game seven, obviously, yeah, yeah. Uh, to kind of piggyback off what you said about pre-series expectations i same here man we called it uh we both said edmonton i i think we one of us said six one of us said seven yeah i said Um, six and we both felt that it's going to be a series we both felt in the end the better team would probably prevail and we weren't wrong about too much uh i you know mike smith we poked fun at him but he made the saves he had to make and i agree with you they weren't 
of the highlight reel caliber. I can't remember any, maybe one or two, uh, where the Kings were truly dangerous. But yeah, uh, game one. And the theme, it starts in game one. The theme is how these teams start the game. And more importantly, who scores the first goal? It becomes obviously a threat in the entire series. I felt Kings started the game well. Obviously, they, they take the 2 nothing lead. The first one on the Moore goal. The second one on the Ayafalo goal. On that nice pass from behind the net. And that's kind of the moment I realized. was like, hey, we we were right. Like this is going to be a series. It's it's mm-hmm. gonna probably go down to the wire. And the reason we wanted the Oilers, I think, even towards the end of the regular season, we kept talking about how give me Edmonton is because we felt the style of play the Kings put on the ice every night will work in the playoffs and will specifically work against this team, this goaltending and this defense, and they showed it in game one, I thought, all throughout. Yeah, yeah, I think, and I think them jumping ahead to a 2-0 lead like that injected me with a little bit of of confidence as to how the rest of the series was going to go, and gave, started giving me that glimmer of like, oh, oh, they might they might pull this off, right? Because because you go game one into Edmonton and you win a game in Edmonton, or even go up two zero in a game in Edmonton and and I think that sets a very big tone for for the Kings as well right that the the guys on the bench start believing Ayafalo who really hadn't been doing too much offensively towards the tail end of the regular season he gets in there he gets a goal the more uh the more to know and I think Ayafalo was with them on that line right like that was the line that they had going for that for that night um to see them humming like that on the first two goals, I started getting a little bit excited, you know, like, and, and Edmonton came back because that's what they do. And they have the offensive firepower to get back into it. But, but there was some swagger to that game, right? Drysaddle and Jersey going back and forth and Drysaddle with, with a nasty slash on Jersey yep. that I don't think he got anything for even supplementally. Um, but then Dursey coming back and and contributing on the on the eventual game winner and and hollering in Drysaddle's face, I mean that's the kind of stuff that the playoffs really are made for, right? Like that's that's when you start feeling like, man, I hate these guys, right? Like that's that's when the that's when the hate starts bubbling and and scrums are, are playing and guys who you know aren't necessarily the most physical guys start contributing a bit more. Um, but I guess I should back it up a little bit because um, the reason why I follow was on that line was because Arvidsson was out. And then later we find out that, you know, he had a, a slip disc and he eventually had surgery for it. Um, so, you know, that's, that's right off the bat. That's a, that's a huge loss yep. for the Kings. Um, Arvidsson being a, a big shot generator, uh, third leading scorer for the team in the regular season, despite his injuries. Now you get rid of him. You get rid of Dowdy. It it's it sucks. It sucks. And um, again, not to. I mean, it's not a spoiler alert or anything. Everyone knows how the series ended. But a, a common thing that I was saying that a lot of people were saying was 
what a different series this would be if those guys were playing, right? Like we pushed them to seven games. What a different series it would have been if those guys were playing. All across the board, even the, you know, the never shy to speak his mind, Drew Doughty repeated it several times in his exit interview that he felt that had certain players, obviously himself included, been in that series, we would be having a different conversation at the end of the day. So the Arvidsson thing, yeah, it, that, that becomes a thread in the series. And then in game one, another thread becomes very, very apparent, and that's five-on-five five play versus mm-hmm. special teams play. Five-on-five mm-hmm. five in game one, the Kings expected goals, 2.36 Edmonton, 1.85. But when you switch it to all switch situations, Kings 2.61, Edmonton 4.22. And here we go. Like that's that does not falter in any way. Those numbers don't really move either way. Edmonton shows how lethal they are on the power play. The Kings show how inept they are on the power play. And the Kings penalty kill. Missing a guy like Dowdy, by the way, is, is huge right. in the special teams right. conversation. In both categories. Yeah. Both, and yeah. both for Dowdy. RV obviously on the power play is a huge plus. So these seeds get planted of like, this is what we're going to see. And that's essentially what we saw. The Kings win game one. And we mentioned that, I think I specifically said that if the Kings won game one, people will start shitting their pants. And I Mm -hmm. think that's exactly what happened. Um, You roll into game two. And this is the one game that I feel like uh mike smith really played well of the seven games and i realize he he had two shutouts in the series but of the seven games the one game that i feel like mike smith played really well and won the game for himself and for edmonton and kind of stabilized the uh the pants shitting if you will was was game two i mean that it was what was it like a 48 shot shut out something along those lines i i forget the exact number i know it was north of 40 though uh yes i think it was a high shot volume but i will say that the high danger quality of those shots was the lowest probably the kings uh produced in any game outside of game seven right and going back again this is one of the few games i think it was i would say game two game seven certainly and probably i gotta check on game six but this is a game where Edmonton had the advantage in all situations, including five on five. The Kings were outplayed five on five. They didn't generate anything truly dangerous mm-hmm. uh, as the game went on. First period, you could tell right away it was it was probably going to be a different game. Um, I don't. I didn't think the Kings started poorly, but again, that first goal so important. Edmonton Edmonton gets it and kind of away they go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it was six nothing, but I think the Kings in both games kind of gave up <laughs> for lack of a better word. They, I think they were kind of checked out, uh, but I thought they were much better on the attacking game three, even though they only scored two goals to Edmonton's eight. Yeah. And again, this is that eight, three loss in, in game three. We've seen a few of these throughout the year, which is why the Kings goal differential at the end of the year was so, odd right like they were barely positive i think on the on the goal differential by the time the the regular season ended and it's because they've had these like 
five nothing, seven nothing, like these these ridiculous losses to teams, including Boston, Toronto, Carolina. I think they lost to the Sharks. I think at one point five zero or six zero. Like I don't have a good explanation for that. I really don't. They just have these games where everything seems to kind of fall apart a little bit on the defensive side and the goaltending side. Um, I mean, it is what it is. And and I felt like after two games like that, after having that many goals scored against you across two games, I personally thought it was it was like done. I, as I was like, as okay. did I, because it's yeah. such lopsided scores. Um, even after even after game two, you don't feel really bad about anything because you got the split and that's right. usually the goal and that's a right. cliche, but that's true. Right. You get the split, you take one on home ice, you take, now you have home ice uh, when you go back to LA and it's a good situation. And that was, that was a weird game, that eight to two game. It, 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 I well, it was also weird because that's, that it. was the that was the thing that they kept saying, right? Was oh, we got the split, now we're coming home, and we got home ice and and everything. And I was like, okay, maybe they believe this, and maybe they're gonna like actually. I thought. I guess what I'm saying is, I thought the six zero loss was gonna be the eight three loss, right? Like every time they've lost like that during the regular season, they've come back, they've bounced back, they've put on a much better, very Kings like effort for the following game, and when that didn't happen when they got two games of getting smacked around like that, I was like, oh, geez, like, I don't know how, I don't know how you regroup for game four. I really don't know how you come out and go, okay, we're going to put those two games behind us, <laughs> you know? Yeah. But, and, they, but they did. And quick getting chased in game three right, is a right. big thing. Usually Jonathan quick is good for a bounce back after a six, nothing type game. Right. Didn't quite happen in game three but when when i saw him get the hook a party a party was like okay he's probably going to be pretty fired up at the very least for for game uh four Mm -hmm. and he was and he was solid and solid and this was a the kings were dominant in this game they were in my opinion they were absolutely dominant from beginning to end i don't think the Oilers, especially five on five, almost had nothing for the Kings in this game. It was, I mean, the Oilers generated, but it was towards the end. I remember when they were trying to get chances. First and second period, I think it was just all Kings. And this is kind of the game where Carl Grundstrom becomes a name all of a sudden that is on the lips and fingertips of every Kings fan. Um, the Grundstrom game. I would say is a fitting, fitting name for that game. And I don't know why it's taken so long. I really don't. I, I've I've been. Well, he's barely been in the lineup. But that's what I'm saying, though. That whole concept of why he's barely been in the lineup, you know. And now all of a sudden, on exit interviews and all these things, it's like, oh well, he's he's going to be a part of the team's future. He plays a very unique game. You got Brownie talking about like how there's how he sees bits of himself, and you know, I'm like, yeah, that has been there. That has been there all freaking season when this guy's actually in the lineup and playing more than eight minutes a night. Like his shooting percentage is solid. His game is different than anything else we have in the lineup, but either through, you know poor luck 
or too many forwards or whatever it is. He just never seemed to find his way into the lineup until there seemed to be no other option. And yet every time he was in the lineup, I've never felt like he was out of place or he cost the game or played in a way that is unbecoming of what you want to see in this roster. So again, it wasn't necessarily surprising to me to see him have a good game. I know he's capable of these types of games. He just never seems to be given a consistent chance, which is kind of a a common theme, unfortunately, with a lot of the Kings young forwards, quite frankly. Which I guess, to back it up a little bit, worth mentioning that Quinton Byfield... Yeah, I was about to go into that. Yeah. What was it? He After game three or game two, he basically sat the rest of the series. I, am I forget now. Checking that right now because I, off the top of my head, can't remember... Either. He, just, he he played he, he, he played two games. So after game two, yeah. he was out. Um, yeah. He was he was a minus two in that game. <clears throat> I mean, who wasn't? But yeah, yeah. But going, even even going in, even home, in game one, out. yeah, yeah. Even in game one, I just I didn't I didn't feel like he was playing well. No, it frankly. felt like the moment was too big, right, for him. And it's not for a lack of effort. I think he was trying. He was trying to hit those open spots with his skating. He, he was doing his best, but he was physically outmatched. You could tell right away he's being pushed around for someone of his size. You know, it, it's, it's, it's expected with his age, but at the same time, you would hope that with his size, with his IQ, that he could manage in an environment like that. But it seemed very early on that he, he probably could not. And it, I, I, I know the Kings won game one, but he had five minutes of ice time in that game. Mm-hmm. Um, game two, he doubles his ice time, but I think all that did is kind of make the flaws more visible or make it more obvious how much he maybe didn't belong in the series quite yet anyway. Mm -hmm. So I wasn't surprised. I think we, you know, we being fans or you and I texting back and forth kind of saw it coming that, that in game three, he would probably be out and hard to say if it proved to be the right choice but overall i feel like it was i i agree with that i i don't think especially if you're only giving a guy five six minutes a night like you need those to be five six really solid good minutes and i don't feel like i don't feel like he was bringing that during those games during those minutes he was getting bodied off the puck he was getting stick lifted he just didn't seem like he was recognizing the flow of the game and where he needed to be to play at least a safe game. And at that point, you start kind of treading on that area where you're you're a bit of a liability to the team. I I think you're going to get a short leash, especially in the playoff time where McClellan is clearly leaning on his veterans, right? Like Kopi and Deneau basically were playing 22 plus minutes a night, if I'm not mistaken. You know, all situations hockey and all they're asking from you is to go out there and play six to eight minutes a night and not mess it up. And if if you can't do that, you're not going to, you're not going to get out there. And so he gets pulled and uh, Kupari, I think gets put in and also Spence gets pulled for game three or game two. I forget, but uh, uh, I think it's after, maybe it was game after game three, he got pulled um, because then Troy Stetcher goes in 
and he proved to be very effective, getting a couple goals in the series, stabilizing the defense a bit, and uh, turning the flow around, and then Spence obviously doesn't get back in for a game either. Yeah, Stetcher plays games five, six, and seven. Yeah, yeah. And finishes with <laughs> two goals and two assists. There you go. There you go. Also, um, um, Andreas Athanasiu gets pulled from game four, mm-hmm. which the Kings win four nothing. And he's kind of a. Well, I'm going to talk about him a little bit. Go for it. Because we have. I'm, I'm always for Athanasiu talk. Yeah, well, you might not like what I have to say. That's okay. Side. Good or bad. Um, I will say, and we'll get, as we go through the games, I'll, I'll elaborate more as to why, but I think he's done with the Kings. I think I'm, I wasn't sure before, and, and mm-hmm. we've supported him, and we've seen the skill, and everyone talks about it, and everyone's been talking about it, even in the exit meetings and throughout the series, he was called like the fourth or fifth most skilled player in the series, things like that. And I don't argue that. I think that's absolutely correct. But as the series went along, like you really got to see the warts in his game. I think more than more than you see during the regular season. Mm-hmm. When everything's magnified and everything's on the line and the every play matters as much as it does. Um I think it really showed his deficiencies. And I think given the kind of the summer the Kings are going to have here and the decisions they're going to have to make, I think the writing's on the wall now for him to probably move on. Yeah, for various reasons, obviously, that we've discussed. Um, and it's fine. I'm not going to like sit here and cry over over not having Athens you. I think it was just surprising that they kept – putting him back in the lineup after that and not just back in the lineup, but in like vitally important situations, hoping that he was going to be the difference. It, it, I kept getting like strange mixed vibes from, from how they were handling him during the games, right? Like he'd commit a costly turnover that would lead to a goal and then go right back to him on a six on five situation. And I'm like, okay, you know, why is, why are we giving him a chance at redemption in this situation? I don't know but I'm not there. I'm not on the bench. I'm not, you know, reading the intricacies of what they're picking up, but yeah, there was, there were for, for every like solid decision that I think was made lineup wise. Uh, there was a couple here and there that just were a little confusing to me. And I, and I respect where they're coming from. Like, it's not easy when you're missing that many, you know, important pieces and you're trying to kind of put together a little bit of a lineup especially when basically your best line throughout the entire regular season, all of a sudden is just taken away from you. You have to kind of finagle that a little bit. Yeah. And is kind of, you know, getting scratched and then putting, being put back in and then he scores like the outhouse to the penthouse. Right. Right. Kind of narrative continued after he got scratched going into game five, he had a good game. Uh, He was one of the leaders in expected goals at five on five. He scored that goal from Brown, that beautiful play by Dustin Brown, where right. all all Athens you really had to do is just stand just there. Just stand there. I think he <laughs> laughed at Mike Smith before he shot, actually. <laughs> Mike Smith doing his patented snow angel. 
and it was in the roof. Uh, but yeah, man, game five, probably the most entertaining game of the series. Mm-hmm. And the score wouldn't tell you this, but the Kings probably played their best game up until the third period or towards the end of the third period. They and, were, and I think, sorry, go ahead. Finish I was going to say they were in complete control of the game. It looked like they were coasting to victory. You know, the Oilers did punch back, of course, but when Dano makes it 4-2 on the power play with like eight minutes left, you're thinking you can turn the lights out on this one. This one's over. But mm-hmm. special teams, once again, here they come, shorthanded. Leon Dreisaitl. And then on the power play, Leon Dreisaitl. And he was having a rough game that game too. All I kept hearing... And I was watching the ESPN uh, broadcast for or TBS or whatever it was, but um, they just kept commenting how rough Dreisaitl's game was. But that's that's the kind of power that these dynamic offensive players have, right? Like put them in a power play situation, put a couple of them together, which they did, obviously, whenever push came to shove and they needed a goal, immediately going to Dreisaitl and McDavid being together, regular, you know, five on five or during the power play because it kept working. It kept working. And I, I, I still, for the life of me, I don't know what they need to do beyond completely changing the, the PK strategy because clearly the, either the personnel or the strategy is not working and you can't change the entire personnel. So I feel like you have to figure out a different system because it, it had been a thorn in the side of the Kings the entire regular season and it bit them in the ass again in the playoffs. And it, it cost them the series. Without question, it cost them the series. So after the Oilers tie it at four, I remember texting you that this game is over and that there is no way in hell the Kings are winning this game. Correct. Because the way it all snowballed and the way the Oilers look, made it look so automatic I I truly believe like that was it. You had it and you lost it. And the way hockey goes is that you pay for those. Mm-hmm. You don't you don't go away unscathed from those. Mm-hmm. But then the Oilers decide to start overtime in the most dismal fashion I've seen. Maybe any team start a period that's so important. Obviously, it's overtime. It's in the playoffs. It's game five. Game five is such a pivotal game. And for them to come out and just, I don't think they touched the puck. Granted, yeah. it was it was like a minute and a half, but I don't think they touched the puck. I don't think they pursued the puck. I just think, I don't know what, I think maybe they thought the game was over too. I, I think I think the Kings just came out and they they played a very prototypical Kings shift, right? I, I, I want to say it was Deneau that was out there on the draw. It was Deneau's line that started it off. And they won the draw and they just had a, a puck control, grinded out offensive zone shift. And they did that and then they they um, switched it off to the Kopitar-Kempe line and McDavid was double shifting at that point and was gassed. And so once Kempe got the puck and he McDavid kind of swiped at it or McDavid kind of lost the puck and Kempe picked it up and went, they couldn't keep up with him. They were just, they were gassed. And so he beat them inside with a great power move using his speed, burying his shoulder and, and putting 
probably one of his like career best goals in, I think, in terms of importance, individual effort, patience, celebration. <laughs> yeah. Uh, it was, he victimized Duncan Keith on that one. And as you said, it was a long shift. I think Kane blew a tire at the King's blue line instead of getting it deep. And it was like one touch to Kempe and he was gone. Right. McDavid was probably tired, like you said, but it, it's still only a minute. So I don't know how, especially a minute of standing around. Yeah. With respect to them. So I, I was really surprised that I was shocked that the Kings got away with, I, I you know, they were up for the like 90% of the game and I still felt like they stole that game. Yeah. So they roll into game six, man. And this is where I think it all goes to hell for the Kings. And again, we're talking about something that's we, you know, at at the pit of my heart, I always believed the Oilers would win this series. Uh, But after game five, for the first time, I was like, maybe not. And and again, it's it's that vibe, right? It's just the way they won Game Five. They took the the best punches the Oilers had. They, you know, they they relinquished a lead, and the Oilers got took it to overtime, and they were feeling good, and we were feeling terrible, and we thought they were going to lose, and they still pulled out a knockout, and all of a sudden you're one game away and you got two chances at winning it. And <sighs> yeah, that's 500 hockey. Yeah. It's obviously a very small stretch of games. It's two games, but you got to go 500 in two games to win the series. Uh, immediately after game five, the Oilers decide we're going dry sidle McDavid. The hell with it, which is probably the, the right call, <laughs> you know, just right. looking at what they did together, uh, it was just tremendous. It was absolutely tremendous. I think I put up a tweet where their expected goals and all their basically all their metrics together were off the charts, seventy percent or higher anytime they were on the ice. A lot of it was on the power play, of course, but that's how lethal those two guys proved to be in this series when put together. And in game six, I felt the Oilers changed something and it was hard to pinpoint what but they slowed the game down mm-hmm. they were they thought or their mentality was this is not going to be a track meet and we're going to beat them in bursts and we're gonna again I'm, I'm speculating this is this is what was said in the locker room but there was a clear change in the way they were attacking they were no longer freewheeling they were no longer their puck management was a lot tighter their details were a lot better uh they weren't going to risk puck possession for a possible opportunity at a goal. Mm-hmm. They were patient with it and uh, it, it paid off for them. And, and listen, they went up to nothing and the Kings come out in the second and they get two or Thursday in the second to make a two one on the power play. Mm-hmm. And then to start the third, Roy makes that pass to Grunstrom and it's two, two. And I thought the Kings were going to win the game mm-hmm. because they were so the kings were also lackluster in the first there seemed to be no urgency they weren't really taking the play to the oilers and and if i'm being honest in the entire seven game series there were only a few times where i felt the kings were 
taking the game to Edmonton versus laying back, waiting for a mistake, or just going off their shot volume and just playing the percentages and hoping something beats Mike Smith. Right. But in the, I, I thought in the, the end of the second, start of the third, they were taking it to Edmonton. And I thought, this is it. They came back and they're going to win this game. But something else happened in game six, and that's Connor <laughs> McDavid. And I don't gush too much about players, but I thought from what I've seen from him, and I've been able to watch a significant amount of Oilers games just because of him. That's why I want to watch those games. That was probably the best game I saw him play, and he didn't even do anything offensively spectacular. But you could tell he was dialed in. You could tell he was saying, no, 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 we're not losing. I don't know if I've seen a player be able, you you know, players say that. Mm -hmm. Sure, you think that, but this isn't the NBA. You know, you can't go out and play 75% of the game and say, I won this game. But I really think he won that game. And at that point, the Oilers hadn't scored without McDavid on the ice since game three. And it it went all the way till the end of the series. Uh, The Oilers did not score a goal without Connor McDavid on the ice after game three. Mm -hmm. The first goal, right? Like the first goal is so important. We talked about it at the beginning of the show. Right away, you know, like he's the one who scores it. He's the one who makes the play happen. And that sends a very clear message to his team that he's going to carry them. And he did. He carried them in game six. I thought he was outstanding. This, this is always, this is so confusing to me. And obviously we had a lot of interaction with Oilers fans throughout this on Twitter. Um, We never had anything but a good thing to say about McDavid through the entire series. It was nothing but admiration. God, he's good. Why can't we stop him? It's not fair. He's a human cheat code, et cetera, et cetera. Not a bad thing to say. And yet, this constant interaction kept happening where, for whatever reason, there was this steady stream of Oiler fans that kept coming at us on Twitter about, like, Mike Smith deserves credit and Darnell Nurse and why aren't you guys, you know, gushing about Zach Hyman? I'm like... Seriously, like this is these are the battles that you're fighting right now is you can't just be like, yeah, man, we've got the best player on the planet and you guys don't. So that's why you're losing. I'd be like, yeah, that, that is why we're losing. No, no, no. We we need to we need to defend 85 year old Mike Smith's honor at this at this juncture in a playoff series. Don't forget Brett Kulak and Cody CC. We have you have Lord. to give all these guys their flowers. Oh my god, come on. We'll we'll dive more into like some of our fun interactions. It's but it's just, it was just driving me crazy, dude. It was driving me crazy because I'm not one to sit there and be like, yeah, but if you got rid of McDavid, you guys wouldn't win even though it's 100% fact. Because I'm not going to play hypotheticals like that. He's your player. He's your team. He's your franchise. You have him. you play him every opportunity you can and you let him take over and win a game because that's what you're supposed to do with your best players. But what I could not understand was why people 
and maybe this is their own like denial or maybe their own way of like, I don't know, shaping in their head that their team is actually better this year, that they're more balanced, that they have a better whatever. But it was just this constant barrage of like, Mike Smith's the best. <laughs> look at look at Darnell Nurse out there. And I'm like, come on, man. Come on. Just look, take your win, take your franchise player and how well he's playing. And just be like, yeah, he's amazing. You guys don't have him. <laughs> I, I can accept that. In game six, Leon Dreisaitl gets tied up with Mikey Anderson and gets somewhat mangled. <laughs> it did not look good. No. Um, and, you know, Oilers Twitter was calling for suspensions and lynchings <laughs> and, you know, take him out in the middle of the street and run him over with several cars for doing that and it was unfortunate it did, it did not look good and maybe maybe a maybe a penalty but let's let's not stand here and act like mikey anderson approached leon dreisaitl and said all right if i pull him in this angle in this direction and if his teammate skate comes in for the block i could really give him a high ankle sprain here so i'm just gonna go for it and if it's come on man and this it, it's it's insane some of the narratives people can come up with. And I think that's also coming off of like the nurse headbutt, the Cassian kidney cross check. I mean, come on. Man. And that's and that's you know that tweet I said about Nar I, I I was the one who tweeted it about Darnell Nurse and how it's funny that he's gonna make nine nine point twenty five million. It happened after the headbutt and I was fired up about like how what a dirty play that was so I just kind of threw that tweet out just to maybe amuse myself and it for some reason got like almost 200 likes and <laughs> several comments and retweets and all of a sudden everyone's coming after me with Darnell Nurse plus minus stats and all this fucking horse shit like they're a funny bunch like that's the best way I could put it um Darnell Nurse is overpaid at 9.25 million all right let me repeat that with my voice in case you think I'm hiding behind Twitter, 9.25 million for that guy is going to be a disaster for the Edmonton Oilers. Check his plus minus today. Check his plus minus today. First of all, plus minus is a bullshit stat. It's not complete horseshit, but it's pretty damn close. Well, yeah, if your team's scoring six goals in one game and eight in another game, your plus minus is going to be okay. If you're playing 20 plus minutes a night, like... It's just it's just logic. Okay, check his defensive scorecard from tonight. Exactly. It's like it's... anyway. Um, Drysidles looks to be injured, right? So in games, so this this gives me more hope in game seven. I will say though, before we move on to game seven, I did not like Jonathan Quick in in game six. I thought he was leaky. There was a couple of plays that beat right. him. I just sat in the crease a couple times. Um, I didn't like the Barry goal, although. Mikey Anderson had a beautiful screen on him. And mm -hmm. then Mikey Anderson had another beautiful screen <laughs> on him in say, game that, seven. That seemed to be a common theme. Series winning goal. Um, but I didn't think he was locked in the way we're used to. The Barry goal. Let's go back to Athens CU here. The Barry goal, Athens CU on a long shift from the Kings, gains the Oilers line, and all he has to do is kind of chip it in to the corner and, and give the Kings the change. And instead he tries to stick handle through a couple of players and it's like a quick up to McDavid. 
Right. And Dreisaitl's waiting on the half wall because he can't, or not on the half wall, near the blue line because he can't skate because his leg is mangled. Mm-hmm. Um, and just one one or two touches and it's a drop pass to Barry and he scores. That was my first, like, really, that was the first time I've been really mad at, at Athanasiu mm-hmm. because it was it was right there and you saw it as soon as he went for that extra bullshit, like, I was like, here it comes. And they go up three two, and then on the, in the empty net situation, he does the same. <laughs> he does the same damn thing, where all he has to do is rim it around. The Kings are desperate anyway, and the Oilers are essentially loading up on the side. Athanasiu is, and he, what he's trying to do is make a soft chip play to beat the guy and go around. When all he has to do is rim it around to where the Kings have more support, and can get to a puck because the Oilers are so loaded on his side. Doesn't do it. Again, quick up, one pass, Kane is gone. And that's when I was like, okay, I admire your skill, and I know what you can do, but those plays cannot happen in a playoff game from a veteran player, right? You're being trusted, and you mentioned he's now he's out there with the goalie pulled. Like, after that dump in play, he needs to be stapled to the bench. Right. And it's not like you don't have any other option. There's guys. Could throw in a guy there that you know can bang home a rebound if you're gonna funnel everything to the net like you have been for six games. Um so I think that was that was the swan song of Andreas Athanasiu, unfortunately. Yeah, and, and that was the interesting thing to me because I was like you know, he can he can certainly make something from nothing and he has the speed, but in a six on five situation in particular, say he's never even had the turnover or whatever. Say it's just an empty net six on five situation. Like there's so many bodies. There's so, there's so little room to actually create offensively. Right. Like, and they're not, the Kings are not an offensively gifted team in that way. So it doesn't make a lot of sense to me to put a guy out there who thrives on speed, quick hands, finding space, etc. When the goal here is to just throw the puck at the net and hope it hits someone or there's a rebound or, you know what I mean? Like that's, yeah. that's, so I, it just didn't make a lot of sense to me. To me, that would almost be a better situation for you to throw Dustin Brown, Grunstrom, you know, Kopi Kempi, Dano and, and whoever, Dursey out there and just try to make something happen. Like if you give it to Athanasiu, you're, you're basically asking him to make something from nothing to do finesse and, and find offense in that situation. And I don't think that's an ideal situation for him, right? He's a, he's a kind of a power play specialist, uh, you know, Five yeah, they on want five. a power play specialist on this Well, not team. on this team. <laughs> but he's, you know, he's a guy, if you hit him in open space. Yeah. Like, that's where he, and he had it one play like that in game seven. Well, by the way, I was surprised he was in game seven. I really Yeah, was. totally. And I know you. it's game seven, you go with the veteran because your options are all younger at that point. Is Byfield, Velarde, and whoever are your options. But he had a play in game seven where he swung. It was a, it was a regroup play. He swung low and then started coming up ice and they hit him across ice and he was in full stride and i'm like he's going right to the and he did he drove wide and he went right to the net and had a great chance on smith 
Like that's his game. Like that's his game. Right. He should he should play more like Adrian Kempe. And that's it, it's so funny that you say that because that's how Adrian I feel like that's how Adrian Kempe used to play. Was used to play. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. His game was purely find the open ice, swing, cut. That's my game. And he's evolved that a little bit this season where he still has that he he picks his spots a bit more, so he's less predictable out there, but still capable of doing that. Whereas I think with Athanasiu, you know that's his play. <laughs> and yeah. and if you can anticipate it, you can stop him because you can angle him. If you if you're a step off, then he's gone. And again, I, I think that works well on certain teams. I wish the Kings were the kind of team that that would work well on. I can totally see him signing with, I don't know, Carolina or something like that, where they'll know exactly where to play him and he'll get 15 goals and yeah. somehow contribute. You know what I mean? Like You won't play every game. No. Right. No. And that's, and that's the thing is like, if you can't trust him to play 82 games, right. it's probably time to right. let him go. Right. So that that's what I anticipate, but you know, game seven. I don't think the Kings. You know, the first period I did, like I said, I did feel okay. I was like, okay, tough road period. Oilers had the puck. You survived, like you you knew it was coming. They're on home ice, but again, it was so obvious from from the drop of the puck that McDavid was not going to lose that game. It was just plainly obvious and it became more and more obvious as the game went along um cody cc scores tremendous play by mcdavid to set up that goal just he went to work down low below the goal line below the dots and the kings just had no answers for him you know and you know mikey anderson kind of gets caught trying to contain him and then as soon as the pass is made it's such a quick kind of a bang bang play that mikey and ends up kind of standing there and screening quick mm-hmm. and it's one nothing there and, and that's where I you know that's where you kind of know okay the way this game is going the Kings aren't generating anything like right. literally anything everything's pretty much easy for Smith save for one or two plays and in the third period McDavid goes super scion Beats Dursey. Dursey completely quits on the plate to turn around and have a conversation with the referee. And McDavid dangles whoever is just standing there. Uh, at that point, Quick is on the on the floor and, and he goes top shelf, and that's game. It, again, it's it's a perfect microcosm. I feel like of of why the Kings have lost games like this throughout the year. They look gassed. They're not, they're not generating their offense in the typical ways that they do. And a particularly skilled player can come along and, and break the game open. And the Kings don't have a response to that. Now, I don't think that the Kings lost the series because they don't have a game-breaking talent or anything like that because that's just not... That's not their. No, that's not their thing. There is no world where you could go get Connor McDavid. No, or a no, player three notches below Connor McDavid for that. Right. Matter. At best, you're hoping that 
the guy you drafted second overall turns into your first line center, right? Like that's, uh, and that's, that's kind of what the Kings are ultimately hoping. They're not hoping. I think it's ridiculous to hope that Quentin Byfield becomes your very own Connor McDavid. No, because he would have been by now. Exactly. Connor McDavid was Connor McDavid when he was 14. Exactly. Exactly. So my point is that like, I think when, when, when they play games like this and they lose against superior offensive talent, despite their best efforts to contain said talent, it just shines a light on what it is that this team is, is, is still missing to kind of get over that hump, right? Like they still have to play a complete team game every single night if they're going to win these games. And if there's ever a night where everyone's not completely locked in playing Kings hockey, hashtag Kings hockey, then there's no one who can who can step up and and be like, all right, guys, I got us tonight because I'm individually skilled enough outside of the team game to kind of make that happen. And that's that's where you're hoping your second overall draft pick maybe develops into that kind of guy because Byfield clearly has that kind of talent. That he's got the he's got the tools. It's just a question of will his toolbox ever kind of come together in the way that he can be that kind of player. Because again, you might, you might, I'm a big fan of like the team game and the Kings never really had like a true star or whatever it is, but I'm also a big fan of, uh, of Byron Bader's hockey prospecting site and it's consistent, man. The teams that win cups, they have consistently three to four star level players having star level seasons. Even the Kings at it. The years that they won the cups, they had they had star level players playing like stars. You had Doughty, you had Kopitar, you know, Gabrick was putting up numbers, Carter was putting up numbers. They don't have that right now. Deneau had a fantastic season. He's not a star player. He's a great player. He's not a star player. Kopi's no longer a star player. Doughty probably would have had a, a star level season, but he wasn't healthy. He wasn't there. So when you're missing those pieces, you're you're still not at that level. And the only way you're going to find a guy like that without giving up a king's ransom is is hoping that the guys you drafted turn into that guy. That's that definitely is part of this offseason is is there needs to be steps forward. And I don't mean incremental anymore. Like there needs to be there needs to be an appreciable Adrian Kempe level step forward for some of these guys, right? Like he's a bone Kempe now is a bona fide 30 goal scorer. I feel he's going to be the, he's, he's got to do it again. He has to guaranteed. And he's in, you know, they're talking long-term contract extensions. I'm sure ridiculous numbers are being floated around, even though apparently if you believe some of the stuff that the mayor's thrown out there, they might get it for five times 5.5, which I think would be a ridiculous deal um, for the Kings, I mean, in a good way. But he's the one guy so far that has taken that step forward. Right. It took him a long time. It did. It took him a very long time. Clarify that. And a guy like Quentin Byfield, unfortunately, is in a position where he has to do it faster. For well, the, the team's in a position. The team in, right. in general he's is in, in a position. position. And the team's in a position where they need him to do it faster 
than let's say Adrian Kempe did it. Right. That maybe a lot of uh, prospects did it and continue to do. You know, it, it, fair or not, like the way the Kings are set up, you need him to develop into who he's going to be at an accelerated pace for this all to work because Kopitar, you know, he's on the back nine. And if he's a part of what made him so great is his offensive ability. He wasn't just how great he was defensively, which he has been in his, you know, it's hall of fame level, his two way play, but the offense is going to start dipping it dipped in the playoffs it's going to start dipping moving forward most likely so you're going to have to have someone where you could look at and be like all right when when kopi's completely done Mm -hmm. whether it be whether he's on the team or not when kopi's you know borderline defensive specialist who's who's going to play those minutes who's going to take some of that load off of him and it's got to be quentin byfield at this point I don't think, yeah, I don't think there's a number one center anywhere else that you can get. He's easier guy, and he's got to do it a little faster. And and I'm giving him no. This is no shade on him because he's he's very much a kid. So it's borderline unfair uh, to even have any expectation of him. But the way the league is going, the way these higher draft picks are hitting so early on it just creates the situation where he's there's got to be urgency now with him yeah yeah and it's it's windows right like you're you're still trying to capitalize on your veterans before they completely fade out you got your mid-level guys who are assigned to reasonable contracts that you're hoping to kind of keep at that level and and all of this, you're kind of balancing your salary cap and everything. I mean, the teams that win end up winning because they've got talent distributed across those those different salary levels. You got guys producing it on their entry level or their or their second contract. You've got your veteran guys who are still producing and are kind of maybe not making as much as they used to. And then you've got maybe one or two big money guys in the middle, right? That's 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 the formula that's what works that's what needs to happen in a salary cap world for your team to be successful and it 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 may not be fair to him but that's the pace that it has to progress kopitar's got two years left on his deal i wouldn't be surprised if he takes the dustin brown road and and kind of retires at the end of that he's played a lot of games yeah and watching those exit interviews and stuff, which were great, by the way. Um, he didn't outright say it, but I, I got the sense that perhaps he'd been banged up a bit more than he was willing to admit. Um, certainly not enough to keep him out of the lineup, but enough where he's feeling it more now than he would have four or five years ago. And so, you know, and... Phil Deneau, I think, took a tremendous step forward in his career, but I, I, I don't think it's reasonable to expect him to be even even better. You know, you can't be like, oh, he put up 60-something this year, so what's stopping him from putting up 80 next year? You know, like, that's, come on. No, and that's that's, that's not fair to him either. Yeah, I know. You know None of it's fair. He's a almost ideal second-line center. Yeah. So... 
anyone – let's talk about people that really stood out in the series because really it takes a series, I think, especially when you're in the Kings position, you have all these prospects, you have all, all these young players, you're sorting things out, you're kind of deciding, okay, who am I going to keep mm-hmm. and who am I going to move because we can't play everyone. Let's talk about some players that kind of maybe establish themselves. I think the the one we kind of mentioned was Grundstrom. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's got to he's got to be on the team, right? Opening night, he's got to be penciled in for a majority of the games in the season at this point. I know it's it's the playoffs, and I know it was a few games, but those are the moments where these guys need to separate themselves. And I can't imagine him doing anything more than what he did to right. earn that separation from other guys in the bottom six. Right. So, I think he's I think he's kind of following a Trevor Moore trajectory, if it's fair, where towards the tail end of the season. Uh, last year, Moore started playing some really solid hockey and then went and played in the World Championships and played really, really well. And that's, I think, where, where the team started realizing maybe we've got a little more here than we thought. And sure enough, now Grunston riding his his run through these playoffs straight into the World Championships for, for Team Sweden, where he's actually going to be one of the higher-level players for them. Um I agree. I, I don't see any reason why you wouldn't have him penciled in in kind of a middle six role, personally. Yeah, I think he's – if your second line is going to come back as is, I think he's got to be locked into that third line Yeah. at this point because, you know, we he's also the type of player that it's like you can't keep wavering on him at this point. Like He's a little older too, right? Exactly. Like he's 24 or something, so and, – and it would benefit him greatly to know that he's part of the plans instead right. of always guessing like, I'm, you know, I'm in one game, I'm out the other, I'm out for long stretches. It, it just, it gets old yeah, quick for these guys. He, he showed up, he performed, reward him now. Yeah. It's not, to me, it's not complicated. Yeah. I think Mikey Anderson would be the other guy. Yeah, I agree I think, totally. I mean, we were I talking think... about how we, <laughs> we mentioned screens and stuff, but man, uh, we've been, hard on him at times but i think he he really cemented himself as like he's a gamer Mm -hmm. i don't have doubts anymore i know big games big minutes against big opponents tough matchups he's gonna play he's gonna play hard he you know and, and it's interesting because his leadership has always been apparent and it's always been talked about he's so well spoken and like, you know he's going to work hard. Just based on his attitude and his personality, it's almost like a given that, okay, I'm not worried that Mikey Anderson isn't going to work hard this summer and come back even better. Mm-hmm. I think those those two things are correlated. And I think the way he played, the toughness he played with, he set an example at such a young age or with such limited experience. So I think, not that he wasn't before, I think everyone kind of knew he was part of the the plans but he really i think cemented himself as a core player for the kings moving forward i was very impressed uh the physicality was something that i hadn't necessarily seen from him and so that was nice to see him elevate his game a little bit in that regard um i think i think jersey had a tough series i think they were they were definitely targeting him physically i felt like through the series and really just kind of challenging him to to even try to do anything 
on the offensive side of the puck. That being said, I think he responded well. He took a couple real hard hits. I felt like, I don't know, for whatever reason, they had Zach Cassian just basically stapled to trying to hurt him. Um, but he played well. I think he put up points. He, you know, the defensive side will always need work from his standpoint. But, I mean, he played in all the games. He played big minutes in all the games. Just just a real solid overall season for him, in my opinion. Agreed with Dursey. I think there's a lot of trade Dursey stuff going around on Twitter. Um, and it would... It would be a shame to give him this spotlight, this experience, and not see it through, at least until next season, or through next season. That that's my feeling on it. Like he, he played the Dowdy minutes essentially. He played the in Dowdy spot essentially. Um, he got put through the ringer against the best forward in the world, and he did okay. Like, he didn't do great. He wasn't sparkling, but I think you have to see what he does now. That's my feeling. There's a lot of, like I said, a lot of people that are, have penciled him in for some kind of trade package already for something. I don't know. Uh, and I would say, I would think that would be a mistake because this playoff experience for him was out of the norm for a player of his age and experience. He, I mean, he hasn't even played a full season in the NHL, and you're, you kind of throw him to the Lions. Now you got to see if see what happens. What comes of that? You know, is he extra motivated now? Is he going to put in serious amounts of work? How is he going to respond to becoming a top four defenseman, or in an ideal world, even a full time defenseman on the bottom pairing, whatever? So th- that's my feeling. I think yeah, he was he was the third guy I was going to mention as well. Yeah, yeah, I, I think it's going to be an interesting off season, and maybe they, uh, maybe they listen to Drew's advice, and they go after you know someone a little bit bigger on the blue line, um, uh, and maybe they try to try to actually get that score. I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. Yeah, and I think that's what I would like. Yeah, I think we've been asking for for it's it's still the issue right like uh no matter what it's still the issue with the team i think so um i know there's a lot of people who love grinded out hockey and talent doesn't matter and all this other stuff well we're not those people a little talent's okay (laughs) a little christ you need someone to score a goal right let's be realistic here the king's you need someone to generate. You need someone to score a goal. There was too many times in this series where it was plainly obvious the Kings did not have those things. And you knew from the like, end of the first that nothing's going to happen today. But we will get more into what the Kings need, maybe who the Kings need specifically, what they can do, and what really the expectations are for this offseason, which by all indications is a crucial off season for the Kings. We said that I think last off season too, but um, I, I think, think they're not getting any less important. That's no, for sure. But I think this one specifically after what you would call a successful season, 
a step in the right direction, you have to follow it up with a bigger step because the West is only getting more difficult, specifically the Pacific Division. You know, the Vegases and the Vancouver's and all these teams are going to go all in. I'm not Maybe not Vancouver, but you know Vegas has to go all in and figure it out. Um, and Vancouver was had a stunning record with Bruce Boudreau, and now they'll have him for the entire season next season. So big offseason for the Kings. Um, the playoffs continue to roll on. Calgary's up one nothing on Edmonton after a wild and a woolly game. Um, we, you know our predictions from the last time, so we won't kind of go through those again. Um, but any other surprises in the first round? Marty, I, I think everything was... I mean, Pittsburgh losing, I think that... Yeah, I wouldn't that say was... it was a shocker, but... No, it wasn't. I mean, I thought they would win, but I guess, you know, New York lives to play another series. Um, shocker, shocker. Uh, I guess I really expected Minnesota to win. I really did. So that's uh, that's a bit surprising, but kudos to St. Louis, man. I mean, they're they're a good team. They're they're uh, they're gonna have their hands full with Colorado. That's for sure. I know that the score was pretty close in the last game, but the game certainly wasn't. <laughs> Bennington was playing out of his mind. So, uh, and then that game tonight with with Calgary and Edmonton, wild. I. I <laughs> A nine to six score is uh, certainly not Daryl Sutter hockey. I'll put it no. that way. Goaltending exhibition, it was not. But I, you know, hey, Calgary has a decent power play, and their shooters are dangerous, and they're a shot volume team. Guess what? Shot volume team with good shooters is a problem for the likes of Michael Smith, and and the like. Even though I, th- I thought he was the best goalie on the ice today. If I'm being yeah, honest. that's not saying much though. <clears throat> Markstrom was horrendous. Jacob Markstrom, absolutely brutal. But we'll see how it goes. Certainly, it can only get better. Gosh, it can only get better from there. Certainly entertaining. I watched the whole thing and it lived up to the hype. That's for sure. Yeah. All right, Vardy, it's episode eighty-five. Yeah, it is episode eighty-five, and wouldn't you know it? There's one. 85. I know who it is. All right, let's hear it. It's Peter Klima. It sure is. <laughs> it's Peter Klima. How fitting that the Kings Oilers series wrap up is the Peter Klima episode who played for both teams. Um, he's honestly the only number 85 I could think of. I'd, I'd have to look. You know what's interesting about Peter Klima? So, Peter, you know, because this is obviously the Peter Klima episode <laughs> by obviously. default. Um, so Peter Klima had a 13 year NHL career. He wore the number 85 for six different teams. (laughs) Not, not a huge surprise. No one wants that stupid number. But is, but is that, is that so crazy when like now we're in the eras of the 80, you know, the 87 being particularly popular. It's birth years though, right? Like 87, 97 birth years are now like the the thing and when peter klima was playing no one was born in 1985. oh yeah he's he was born in 64 i'm sure 85 (laughs) was a a 
pretty significant year for him for something. I'm not sure what it was, but he was taken in the 83 entry draft and he was 86th overall. Uh, so I don't know. I don't know what the significance was, but clearly it mattered very much to Peter Klima because he wore that in Detroit, Edmonton, Tampa Bay, LA in 96, 97, Pittsburgh in 96, 97, and again in Edmonton in 90. He played for three different teams in that man. He traveled a lot in 96, 97. Yeah. Um, by the way, Peter Klima, in my opinion, the most iconic tape job in the history of hockey. Google Peter Klima tape job. I'm sure something will come up if you're listening. Um, it's the one, two things I remember about him is are his number and his tape ah, job. Ah, there it is. You, you got the old it. candy cane. Yep, the candy cane uh, up and down the blade. The Klima. That's what that is. Classic. Classic. 40 goal scorer, Peter Klima. That's right. Would you believe it? He was probably 15th in scoring. <laughs> 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 All right. Well, thanks for listening, guys. Thanks as always. Uh, appreciate you sticking around. Appreciate the Twitter interaction. Uh, just because it's the off season does not mean that we stop. We just get even less frequent, if you can believe it. But uh, we love the off season. We love the off season. We love the draft. We love free agency. We love picking apart other teams. We hope to have another list episode. We're kind of mulling over ideas as we speak. Uh, so some good stuff coming up in the summer. Uh, again, no, no disappointment. Uh, good season all around for the Kings. I think uh, a good step forward. And now just like every other exit interview, you know, got to, got to keep going. And so interesting to see what they do in the off season and make that happen. Uh, please like subscribe, keep the Twitter following and commenting coming. Uh, you can find us pretty much everywhere. You can find a podcast. Uh, any other parting words, my friend? Go flames. Oh, that's a good one. <laughs> go flames. Go, go, go Brady Kachuk in the stands. <laughs> we'll see you next time guys. You've been listening to The Bannerman, an L.A. Kings podcast. 